0: This weekend is uh, Veterans Day weekend, and our church is full of heroes. I know you know that. And so what we'd like to do before we go any further with our service, if you are a veteran, uh, we would like to, if you're willing and if you'll allow us to do so, would you stand so that we can cheer for you and thank you uh, the New Life way and celebrate you today? If you're a veteran, would you stand for us? Can we celebrate you today? Thank you. As a church family, we so appreciate your sacrifice, everything you've done, um, your generosity. And uh, I know that we're a better country because of your service, and so thank you very much. Well, I'll tell you what, if I've heard this said once, I've probably heard it said a thousand times, and you probably have too, people who say things like this, all the church talks about is money, or all the church wants is my money. Do you know anybody that thinks that way? Yeah, of course, we all do. We all have heard that before. Um, uh, I think sometimes preachers like me, we get a bad rap because we do focus on money. And uh, people are like, oh, we don't like that. And, and if you spend very much time watching Christian television, you watch televangelists, that it'd be really easy to get that impression that all preachers talk about is money, because it seems like that's all they do talk about is, is money on, on those situations. I, I heard about these two guys one time who were marooned on a deserted island. And the first guy, he was terrified. He panicked. He, he paced up and down the beach, worried that they're never going to be found. And the second guy, though, he actually took off his shirt. He laid down in the sand, and he began to work on his tan. Now, the first guy looked at the guy sunbathing and he said, what are you doing? We're going to die out here. Aren't you worried we're going to die? And, and the guy sunbathing, he opened one eye, looked up and said, nah, we're not going to die. And the first guy who's panicking says, how can you be so sure that we're not going to die? And the guy sunbathing, he said, well, there's something you need to know about me. I'm a very successful businessman. I've got several businesses. In fact, I profit about $100,000 a week, and I tithe faithfully 10% of that to my home church. You see, you don't need to worry. My pastor, he'll find me. He'll find me. Don't you worry. We won't be out here long. I'll tell you, some people do believe, though, that uh, this lie that all the church talks about or all preachers are focused on is money. But can I, can we like just warm up to this reality? Money is pretty much what everybody focuses on, isn't it? I mean, this is what everybody talks about, really. It's the one subject in the world that kind of dominates many conversations. It dominates certainly our attention. Um, It definitely affects us both physically and spiritually. So, you know, why wouldn't the church talk about something that has so much impact on our lives? And truthfully, if you want to know my opinion, I don't think the church really talks about money enough. Do you know that there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that are directly related or speak directly to this issue of money or wealth? or possessions, if you just did a quick survey of everything that Jesus taught, uh, both in his sermons and his parables, you're going to realize that Jesus spent more time talking about money and possessions and wealth than any other subject while he walked on the earth. From my point of view, to not preach or teach about what the Bible says about money or tithing or being a good steward or, or sound financial health, would be to like ignore a massive chunk of the Bible. And I hope that you know me well enough by now that I'm committed to the best of my ability to preach the whole counsel of God. And that includes everything the Bible also says about money. Now, before you get the wrong idea, I don't want to leave the wrong impression before we get into this four-part sermon series together. That these next four weeks, it is not my attempt to persuade you, to start tithing, or to increase your giving. That's not the goal. Now, if that's the result in your life, then so be it. That's between you and God. But what we're going to do together over the next four weeks is we are going to unpack these four biblical principles that if you will take them to heart... In other words, if you'll have the mentality, God, what are you going to teach me through your word? What do you want me as a follower of you, as a believer, to understand about your perspective on on what I have? If you would have an open mind and be receptive to learning these four principles, then I believe it was going to completely revolutionize your understanding of what you have, where it came from, and why you have it to begin with. We're starting a brand new series today called Too Much, and I'm excited to put in all of your hands a resource. You're going to go home with this today. It's a book called Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. It was written by a pastor friend of mine. His name is Gary Johnson. He uh, is a pastor, has been at the same church for 35 years um, in the Indianapolis area, and um, I'll tell you, he is an incredible preacher, gifted writer, and this resource that we're going to put in your hands today is something that's going to bless you immensely. Um, uh, My father um, knows Gary as well, in fact, attended his church for a number of years when my parents lived in Indianapolis, and uh, my father says this of Gary, he is the most gifted pastor I've ever sat under in my life. Now, my dad preached the gospel for 55 years, so that should mean something. This is a wonderful resource for you. I know Gary personally as well. He and I have actually been corresponding together in preparation for this series. So um, I'm, I'm excited to send you home with a copy. Now let me be clear about this too. This, uh, we ordered enough books for one copy per family, okay? Not one copy per person. So this isn't the story where we were giving those books out like candy, all right? not not that, and we wanted to do that. But this is going to be one book per household. So we're going to ask that if you're a husband and wife, you share that, share with your family. But one per household. Let's get through this weekend and see how many we have left over. We already put another book order in because we think we're going to need some more. But I want to make sure everybody goes home with one copy for your family today. You can pick that up in the atrium on your way out. And if you would like to you know, help the church offset the cost of those by donating five bucks, we're certainly going to let you do that. But... If you don't have five bucks, you just take it anyway. Our heart, what we want is for everyone, every family to go home with a copy. So the money's kind of irrelevant. But I know many of you have asked during the story series, can I buy my book? And we said, no, don't worry about it. But we're going to let you this time. If you'd like to give a donation of five bucks, perfectly great. If not, don't even worry about it. What you're going to find, though, in this book is it's broken up into two parts, Gary is going to unpack the same four biblical principles that we're going to talk about on Sunday mornings from the Bible. And he also unpacks four practices that go with those four principles. You're going to enjoy it. Um, If you are in a life group, you'll definitely want to be prepared when you go to your life group. If you are not in a life group, I still want to encourage you to stop by our group's display, take a study guide for you to do on your own. It's still powerfully effective for you to study this out on your own. And I think collectively between what we preach these four weeks together, what we read together, what we talk about in our life groups or on on our own personal time with these study guides, all of that collectively is going to give you a well-rounded education of what the Bible says about things like money and wealth and possessions and what God would have us to do with those and why we have them in the first place. So I hope you'll enjoy what is a very easy read full of examples, and I think it'll bless your life. Can I pray? Will you pray with me as we ask God to bless our time together? Dear gracious God, we give you great thanks for your word for teaching us, Lord, giving us knowledge of what you desire, your thoughts, your ideas. Lord, that's what our prayer is today. Lord, teach us today. Show us what it is that you would have us to learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, please. It's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend our entire time together this morning. While you're finding that, let me tell you about what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's an exciting time in uh, the life of the Israelite people. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. And now it is the time where God's like, it's time to go take possession of the promised land. (coughs) And so Moses, who has been with the Israelites... Throughout this whole journey, he is now speaking to a brand new generation of Israelites. All the parents, excuse me, all the grandparents, all the aunts and all the uncles, they have all passed away. That generation is gone. And so now Moses is speaking to a new generation, the generation that is going to take the Israelites um, or into the promised land. Excuse me, I don't mean to be rude and I'm about to cough on you and <laughs> <coughs> you don't want that anybody else dealing with some of the junk going around right now I am <coughs> what's that Deuteronomy 8 Deuteronomy 8 let me catch my breath here for a second this had to happen during the live stream didn't it All right, I think I'm good now. So there's a new generation of Israelites now. They're going to take possession of the promised land. This is such an exciting time. And so Moses needs them to know some things about what is going to happen and how they got there. In fact, what we're going to read together today is Moses is going to put on display God. He's going to put God on display of all that he has done. So they go into the promised land appreciating some things. So if you would, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1 together. Let's read. Moses says this, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised and oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test You, in order to know what was in your heart, (laughs) whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. If you're taking notes this morning, this would be a great thing to write down. God gives. This is what Moses is putting God on display as a generous God. And he wants them to know that God has given you guys something. God gives, and not just a little bit, but God is outrageously generous, and that's been on display. You see, these people had been in this deserted, this desert wasteland for 40 years, and there was millions of them, if you know the Exodus story. I think it's important to note that when Moses says you, this pronoun of you, he's saying it plural. It's like saying you, all of you, Because the Bible tells us that when they marched out of Egypt, there were 600,000 men. Now, we can make the assumption that there were just as many women, and then they all had children, and families back in this time grew very large. Remember Jacob, he had 12 sons and daughters. It was kind of normal. It's been estimated that there were some 3 to 4 million people that came out of Egypt and spent all these 40 years in the desert. That's a lot of people. I mean, that's like, if my math is correct, six to seven times the population of all of northwest Arkansas. Now, if you were to line up the people of Israel 50 wide and march them out of Egypt, that is a column of people that would be 40 miles long. That's a lot. And, And if they were walking at two and a half miles an hour, which is booking it to me, it would take them 16 hours for every single person to pass the same spot. And you thought Bella Vista had bad traffic at rush hour. <laughs> We're talking about a lot of people here. It has been estimated that that many people would require 30 railroad boxcars of food per day just to feed them, that it would take about 300 tankers of water to keep them hydrated. So as you can imagine, as they moved through the desert, it did not take a lot of time for them to run out of supplies. And so God provided to them the basic necessities that they had. And so Do you remember, if you know the story, a water came out of a rock, didn't it? God provided manna, bread from heaven, every day. He he gave them quail that covered the ground. They could go and collect it. God, it was on display. He was simply being a giver. That is who he is. And we read that from the very opening pages of the Bible. When God created this wonderful garden and he said to Adam, you're welcome to have any of these plants for food. The whole garden, he gave them everything. God gave the Israelites manna, as we mentioned, quail. He gave them shoes or sandals that never wore out. For 40 years, they looked and were as brand new as the day they put them on. Anybody got shoes that are 40 years old? Just quite, I saw one hand. You can ask Malcolm about that later. Are they in a museum? What are they? No, no. Do they look as good as the day you got them? No, I don't know. But that's what God provided for these Israelites sandals that never wore out. He provided them a pillar of fire to guide them. I, I mean, God is a generous God. He gave them this promised land. And you trace this through the Bible. God gave the best gift ever when it says, For God's to love the world, that He gave His one and only Son. God outrageously gives. Let's look at the next verse, verse 7. What happens next? Moses says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vine and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Things are really starting to look up for the Israelites. And there's this energy, there's this momentum that you read as you get to chapter 8. We would say they saw light at the end of the tunnel. That's how we would describe this. They were about to leave their, their land of lack for the land of plenty. And so the question is, how was God able to be so outrageously generous with them? Well, that is an easy question to answer. It's because he owns it all. Now, if you're still taking notes, why don't you write this down? I want you to remember this. He owns. God owns. So not only God gives, but God owns. All over the Bible it states this. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You know what that means? It's all God's. Psalm 50, verse 10, it says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That is a metaphor in reference to how God owns everything. Notice in verse 9, the Israelites would lack nothing, all of their needs be met by God. God's not only the giver, he is the owner of it all. Look at verse 10, Moses keeps going. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the land, for the good land he has given you. Out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land. With its venomous snakes and scorpions, he brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known. To humble and to test you so that it might end, that might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands, have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for he it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord. Your God. I'll tell you, you read all that, and you cannot help but notice that these Israelites are about to experience what we might call today um, some conspicuous consumption. In other words, they are about to go from this level to this level. They're about to go from this level of living, this level of income, this um, 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 feelings, to this. And Moses says, there's some danger when you go from a jump from here to a jump to there. And he warns them about this danger. You're going to go to a land that has everything you could ever dream of. You're going to feast on foods you haven't feasted on before. You're going to live in places that you never dreamed you'd be able to live. Spacious home. Your work is going to get blessed. Your flocks are going to increase. Your herds are going to grow. Everything you invest in is going to grow. You're going to accumulate a lot. And Moses is saying, when that happens, there is a risk that comes with it. The risk is you're going to turn from God. While getting ahead in life, your head is going to get big. That's that's the warning. He said, there's going to come a point where you're going to be in danger. When you look at everything that you have and you're going to say something like this, it was my strength, it was my ability, it was my skill that brought about this incredible blessing. And Moses is like, be warned. That's what you're in danger of. You think, how is God so, how is he able to just give so generously? Well, that's easy because he owns it all. But also, it's because God controls it all. God controls. you still taking notes? Why don't you write that down? I want you to understand. God controls. God controls all that He owns. Notice in verse 19 and 20 that God is sovereign, and it says how God causes nations to rise and to fall. Have you ever said to somebody in a moment of need or they're having a difficult situation and you say, God is in control? We've all said something like that. But I wonder, do you actually believe that God is in control? Because everything that Moses is saying speaks to that truth. God is in control. It's not just something we say to try to encourage people. God sees everything, notices everything. God is in control of everything. And I think this is what Moses is actually saying to them. God causes nations to rise and fall. God's in control of those things. Do you remember the story of Job from the Old Testament? Job lost everything. And do you remember what he said when he, when, he, when he lost it all? He said in Job chapter 1 verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job understood something about God. He can give it and he can take it away. Why? Because he controls it all. Do you remember what Jesus said on his Sermon of the Mount? He said something very similar. He said that it's God who causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the evil. God's in control of that sun. It's God who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's God who controls the rain. God is very sovereign. Think about what he did even for the Israelites. He gave the Israelites manna and quail, and he could have at any moment decided to not give that to them anymore. Had God stopped the manna and he stopped the quail, the Israelites would have been in deep doo-doo, wouldn't they have? I wonder what the Hebrew word for doo-doo is. I don't know. But they would have been deep in it. At any moment, God could have said, this rock will no longer produce any water, and they would have been in real trouble in the wilderness. And so Moses is commanding them to stay faithful to God and to never fall into that trap that says, look what I have done, but it should always be, look what God has done. It's not like my own skill did this. It's God's gifting of the skill that enabled me to do this. And I think Moses has challenging them that how they respond to God's outrageous generosity really is a display of whether the Lord is really going to be their Lord. So, God reveals himself. God gives. He owns. He controls. And God being the immutable God that he is, meaning that he never changes, that he's still the same God to them as he is to us, that he's still the God who gives, who who owns, who controls. And since he is that, how do we as the family of God, how do we as believers respond to that? What is our response to the same God? How do we respond? Well, I believe there's a number of ways to respond. I want to highlight two for you this morning. How do we respond to the God that gives, who owns, and controls? Well, I think we have to acknowledge it. If you're taking notes, why don't you write it down? Acknowledge. We have to acknowledge that God is that, that he... And he alone is the source of everything that we have. A couple of years ago, the British Nutritional Foundation, they did a survey of 27,500 kids between the age of 5 and 16 to discover how well kids today understand where food comes from. And the results of that survey were alarming to the survey takers. It was discovered that many, at least one third of the kids surveyed, um, thought that cheese came from plants. Cheese came from plants. Now, if any of you said cheese doesn't come from plants, we need to talk afterwards, okay? (laughs) Another third of all those surveyed, catch this, thought that fish sticks came from chickens or pigs. Let that sink in. Fish sticks. A number of them thought that tomatoes grew underground. Others thought that, that potatoes grew in bushes and trees. And it goes on and on. Many of them thought that pasta and bread were products of meat, they didn't know. And I'll tell you, what's even more tragic when, is when children and even adults don't realize that God is the ultimate source of our food. It's God. And I'll tell you, as adults, what gets in the way of acknowledging this, it's our own pride. It's the same thing that, that Moses warned the Israelites about. It's, it's pride that makes us just as confused uh, 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 of these things when we think that we are the source of all we have, that our skills, our knowledge, our hard work produced this for us. To that line of thinking, I think Jesus would say to each one of us, it's like, come on. I think that's what Jesus would say. You really think that you did that? In fact, this came up one time when Jesus was teaching and he decided to address it about where the source of everything is. So he tells his story about a farmer who had an incredible crop. It's found in Luke chapter 12. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to tell it to you, and you can read some verses with me on the screens. But there was this farmer who had an abundance, and he was like, I don't know where I'm going to put all this stuff. So in the verse 12, he thought to himself, excuse me, verse 17, "'What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops.'" And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. God had one word for this guy. He called him a fool. He said, it's foolish to think this way, that we can accumulate, we can achieve, we can amass possessions, wealth, power by our own skills. Look what I have done. We only have one name when our thought takes us that direction. And it's the name that God used. It's the name fool. Just as the Lord gives, The Lord can take away. And as a church family, how do we respond to God? I think we respond to God as our provider, as the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth, to earn a paycheck. He is the one that gives us intellect, He's the one that gives us skill, He's the one that gives us opportunity to earn money so that we can put food on the table and put a roof over our heads. God is the source. That's how we respond. And We are going to have problems with money if we fail to acknowledge that God is outrageously generous and it all comes from Him. We will never, ever get our financial house in order if we fail to admit that God owns it, controls it, and that He has given it to us. So things we've got to acknowledge. How how else do we respond to this same unchanging God? Well, I think we have to act accordingly. I think that's how we respond. If you're still taking notes, just write this down. We've got to act. We've got to act in response to what we acknowledge that we believe about God. We need to respond to Him in a God-honoring way. Now, just think with me about a few examples from Scripture about this line of thinking. God was outrageously generous to Adam and Eve, wasn't He? He told them, this whole garden, it's all yours, but there's just one thing you need to understand. Out of all of those thousands and thousands of plants and trees that are there for you to enjoy, you got to keep your cotton-picking hands off of just one of them. That's what you got to understand, just one. Everything is yours in abundance to enjoy, but stay away from that one tree. What was their response? Where's that tree? We've got to get some fruit from that tree. And so for Adam and Eve, you could make the argument that more was not enough. They did not respond to God in a God-honoring way. Nor did the Israelites, if you follow their story to conclusion, God gave them the promised land, farmhouses full uh, uh, to the brim, houses that were wonderful, more than they could ever imagine. What was their response? He realized that two and a half Of the 12 tribes, just looked to God and said, No thanks, we'll stay right here. It's a tragic part of the story. Two and a half of the tribes said, Yeah, we're happy. They were ungrateful, they were unappreciative children of God's generosity. That was their response. They remind me of the 10 lepers that encountered Jesus. They had leprosy. It's a terrible disease back in Jesus' day. And they begged God, have mercy on us. They said to Jesus, heal us, have mercy on us. And so Jesus healed them. They all went away. But then one of them came back to thank Jesus. And Jesus said, well, you know, where are the other nine? Weren't there 10 who were healed? How is it that only one has come back to say thank you? I'll tell you something. How grateful we are is an indication of how spiritually mature we are. How grateful we are to God is an indication of how spiritually mature we are. Have you ever been on a big ship out in the ocean? Anybody ever been that? Anybody ever been on a cruise? I've been on a couple of cruises. I've stood on the top deck and wondered, man, it'd be bad to fall in right now. Have you ever been out in the where you can't see any land? Have you ever had that thought? Imagine with me you were out in the ocean and you fell off of a ship. And let's say that you can't swim very well and you begin to flail around and, and, and it started sinking. you're going to drown. But then all of a sudden there was one person up on the ship deck that saw you go overboard and they sounded the alarm and they ran out and they, they grabbed one of those big life rings. You know, every boat has a life ring and they throw it out to you as far as they can get it. And, and you're just trying to get to it and, and you finally get to it and you're about to drown and hypothermia is setting in because let's make this story more interesting. You're out in the Bering Sea and you're about to freeze. I don't know. And hypothermia is setting in. You grab the ring and the people on deck, they begin to pull you in. They pull you back up onto the ship and they're, they're helping you cough the water out of your lungs. They're putting blankets on you. There's a lot of rejoicing because you, you were about to die, but they, they saved you. I'll tell you what, Can you imagine if your response to that was, wow, did you guys see how I grabbed that life ring? You can't imagine how much strength a guy like me has got to have to hold on to a life ring. Did you see that when my shirt got wet and it like sucked against my body, did you see my muscles bulge out of this shirt (laughs) as I grabbed that life ring and I was able to pull myself back up onto the, that would be a crazy outrageously insane response to somebody who saved your life. None of us would say that. You know what we would do instead? No, no, no. We would say, who's the guy that saw me fall? Where's the guy that sounded the alarm? Where's the one that threw the life ring? Where are the people... That pulled me back on, where are the ones that saved my life? I want to thank him. You would probably hug them. You would probably want to invite them to your house when you got back to shore. You would want to have them for dinner. You would want to give them something because you are that deeply appreciative of them saving your life. Well, I want you to know something. God has saved your life. He has given this outrageously generous gift to you. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our lifesaver. He saved us. So what is our response to that? Is it, eh, ho-hum? Is it, um, hey, God, did you notice how often I worship you at church? Yep, once a month or so. Once a month. Did you notice how often I read your word? Yep, every time the pastor says open your Bible once a month when I'm there. That's how often. Is that how we respond? Hey, did you notice how often I pray? Do you notice how much I give back to you? Do you notice how much time I commit to you, God? What is our response to our revealed God who gives, who owns, who controls. As Moses was getting the people ready to take possession of the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, he tells them to do this. Just just read with me. He says, three times a year, all of your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you... Must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So God says, when you you come to worship me, you're not to come empty handed. Bring an offering, he says, that's in correspondence with how you've been blessed. You ever been invited to somebody's home? It's a neat thing to get invited to somebody's home for the evening. What's our natural, customary response to that invitation? What can I bring, right? What can I bring? We say that because we're grateful for the invitation. Our response to the invitation, our response to generosity is to give ourselves. You know, after you've been served at a restaurant, we often respond with what? A a tip. We want to give something for the service. I want you to think with me about something. The Son of Man came, Jesus To serve, not to be served. And the Bible says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served us, not at a restaurant, let's not be ridiculous. He served us at Calvary. And the Lord has blessed us in the here and now, and he has certainly blessed us in the hereafter. How will we respond, with a tip mentality or with a tithe mentality? God said, let us make man in our own image. And he made us both male and female in God's very image. That sets you and I apart from every other living creature on this earth. We were made in God's very image. We're like the apple of his eye, is what it means. There's something special about his creation. That is outrageously generous. And I wonder how we respond to that. Every morning, the Israelites woke up and they saw God on display. Every morning during that 40 years of wandering. It's like God was saying, good morning, my children. There's manna all over the ground for you to eat today. There's going to be water coming for you from this rock. And I'm going to put a cloud over you today to to spare you from the blistering heat of the desert. God was on display every single day. God does not change. Same God then, same God now. It's like every morning, God looks to you and He says, good morning, my sons and daughters. I've given you life again today. Life is a blessing. I've provided you with the opportunity and the ability to earn money so that you can enjoy life. Right here in this great land, the greatest land on this earth, hands down, America. He said, yours is a good life, but the best is still yet to come in heaven. And I've provided you with the way to your real home. That's how much I love you. God is on display. So to what degree, to what, to what degree do we put Him on display in our lives? Well, that's going to be a wonderful question to wrestle with in this series. Can I pray for us?